You are listening to Mark Hatmaker Rough and Tumble Raconteur. This is a grab bag of old school Western martial arts, resurrected indigenous ways and empirical musings tinged with a heavy dose of respect, admiration, let's call it hero worship, for these hosses of yore. Crew, this is Mark Hatmaker coming to you from the Comancheria. Uh, this episode is the original Roadwork Part 2. Now, this is primarily history. We'll be digging into some other sources here where we take a more expansive look at the uh, history of walking. Yeah, I hear the history of walking snore, right? Stay with me. I think uh, this perspective on uh, what how things used to be gives us a, a nice uh, insight in our practices now. We're hearing some things that were standard practice where today, again, we'd expect a T-shirt or some sort of ribbon or participation medal for such feats. Uh, most of the material we're discussing here comes to us from the massive book by Paul Johnson, The Birth of the Modern World History, 1815 to 1830. It's a thousand plus pages, and uh, to be honest with you, I don't think there's a boring thing on any page, but uh, we're going to go ahead and give you a lengthy quote from uh, his book. Uh, <clears throat> so after his rapturous first meeting with Samuel Taylor Coleridge in Bridgewater, Thomas de Quincey recorded in his diary, About 10 o'clock at night, I took leave of him, feeling that I could not easily go to sleep after the excitement of the day, and fresh from the sad spectacle of power so majestic already besieged by decay, I determined to return to Bristol through the coolness of the night. The roads, though in fact a section of the great highway between seaports so turbulent as Bristol and Plymouth, were as quiet as garden walks. Once only I passed through the expiring fires of a village fair awake. That interruption accepted, though, the whole stretch of 40 miles— For Bridgewater to the hot wells, I saw no living creature but a surly dog who followed me for a mile along a park wall, and a man who was moving about in the uh, halfway town of Cross. The turnpike gates were all opened by a mechanical contrivance from a bedroom window. I seemed to myself in solitary possession of the whole sleeping country. The summer night was divinely calm, and no sound except once or twice the cry of a child as I was passing the window of cottages, and never broke upon the utter silence. Okay, that's into quote from De Quincey there, and you stay with me. It's gonna be a little less flowery from there, and uh, easier to follow the through. And I know it's harder to follow some of this old antiquated language when we're just listening to as opposed to putting our eyes on it. So even the great trunk roads, as the passes suggest, were unfrequented at night in the early 19th century. The year of this was uh, 1807. For few traveled after sundown, unless there was a full moon. More striking still, however, is the way in which De Quincey took for granted a walk of over 40 miles. Now, this was typical of the age that the poor walked everywhere unless they hitched a lift on a wagon. Uh, It was taken for granted that you were going to walk. But the amount of long-distance walking done by the literary middle classes who have recorded is also is also impressive. Uh, in the first three decades, well, the Coleridge, the Southey, and they walked roughly the same route that De Quincey described in reverse, going from Bath by Bridgewater to Nether uh, Stowe. These guys were just walking everywhere all the time. So people walked, women as well as men. When Keats went on his tour of Scotland in 1818, he went by public coach as far as Lancashire, and on foot thereafter, Wordsworth and his sister Dorothy and Coleridge began a similar Scottish tour together on foot. Coleridge, branching off by himself at Stirling, continued for nearly 300 miles miles until there was nothing left of his shoes. Dorothy Wordsworth, with a friend or a relative, regularly walked from Penrith along the uh, Pennines, uh, forgive me, I'm mispronouncing that, and Morris to to visit the Hutchinsons near Halifax. Hazlitt would walk from London to his riding base at Winterslow in Wilshire. His first wife, Sarah, while waiting for her Scottish divorce in Edinburgh, had walked a total of over 200 miles to visit places of interest. Painters were great walkers, too, like the ancients who walked from London to see their friend Samuel Palmer on the Kentish coast at Shoreham, or Michelangelo 
Rooker, who spent his summers on pedestrian excursions 18 miles a day. That's from his diary. Musicians, great walkers as well. The young Richard Wagner, uh, despite his short legs, walked from Dresden to Leipzig and back. Saving money was one motive, seeing nature another, exercise a third. When the painter John Hopner stayed with the nautical Duke of Clarence at Petersham, he was taken off every day after dinner for a, quote, a walk of 10 or 12 miles, unquote. So, nor was walking confined to the country. Uh, Lamb's letters give innumerable glimpses of him walking 5, 10, or even 15 miles within the London area, and sometimes 30 or more in its northern outskirts. The young Macaulay regularly walked from central London to Clapham or Greenwich. Uh, London was not yet a multi-story city, but was spread out over great distances with scores of thousands of one- or two-story houses, often with substantial gardens. Countless numbers walked five or more miles to work and back every morning between seven and eight. You could see 90,000 people tramping across London Bridge to get to the city. But if a walk of 20 miles was nothing, there, was something except- there were some exceptional performers. Let's get back to that. Standard walk for some many could be 20 miles. Think about how much we are walking today, and I include myself in that we. Now, there were some uh, ast- astonishing uh, walking phenomenons back then as well. There's the Scots agricultural expert, a man named Captain Berkeley Allardyce, uh, 1779 to 1854, was noted for, quote, pedestrian feats, unquote. In 1807, he did 87 miles on hilly roads in 14 hours. The next year, he started at 5 a.m., walked 30 miles grouse shooting, dined at 5, and walked 60 miles to his house at Uri in 11 hours after attending to business. He walked 16 miles to Lawrence Kirk, danced at a ball, returned to Uri by 7 a.m., and spent the next day partridge shooting, having walked 130 miles and been without sleep for two days and th- uh, I mean, two nights and three days. The next year at Newmarket, he walked a thousand miles in a specified time for a two thousand guinea bet, reducing his weight in the process from thirteen stone forty one pounds to eleven stone. Quote: He walked in a sort of lounging gait, scarcely raising his feet two inches above the ground. Unquote. Another top performer was Jack Spiller, who had, uh, fought in General Burgoyne's army as a boy and walked all over the United States, from New York to New Orleans and from Richmond to Boston. He was 50 when he performed some of his feats, and he had not a tooth in his head. And again, all that material that we just discussed there was coming from The Birth of the Modern uh, by Paul Johnson. And uh, it, we could continue on with it. And there are many other resources well let us know, whether it's in the States, the old world, England, Europe. Uh, everyone was walking all the time. I mean, how do we think we spread out across the world? I mean, horses, again, were not domesticated for some time. Even then, it was not nearly as widely adopted as we assume. So again, this material is best consumed in in conjunction with the first part, where we're talking about the original road work. And then uh, we start getting a look at, uh, ask, we need to ask ourselves, is running as road work necessary for a combat sport? Hell, if you like to run, by all means, this is not an argument against that. You should be doing it. But I am asking you as the combat athlete, is this, uh, if you don't care for it, there's a good argument for possibly dropping that and then picking up something else in its place. Now, what that is, we'll get to that another day. Right now, we really just want to lay the bag around for some of the contrarian thought that we're throwing out your way. So with that said, enjoy yourself, food for thought. Uh, whether you buy the hypotheses or not, there's still more to come. When we get to, there'll be much more to come. Trust me on this, guys. Take care of yourself. Well, if you dig what we just discussed today, uh, I'd like to invite you to like and subscribe to the podcast. Hell, support it if you want. I'm not your dad. Do what you want. And if you're a glutton for punishment, uh, just visit our website, extremeselfprotection.com. You'll find links to the blog, all of our products, and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of more pages of like music.
Thank you.